How did Chuck Shriver end up as the general manager of the Chicago Hustle, and how did he impact the WBL and women's basketball history? Chuck Shriver joins us to discuss his time with the Chicago Hustle and some of his favorite stories from that time. Locked on women's basketball starts now. You are locked on women's basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Welcome. You are Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm Natalie Heverin, and I'm a features writer and the Atlantic 10 beat reporter for the next. Thank you for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And remember, Locked On Women's Basketball is free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts. On today's show, we're going to discuss Chuck Shriver's journey to the WBL and the impact he had while he was general manager of the Chicago Hustle. Um, joining us is um, Chuck Shriver. Uh, starting off, how did you join the Chicago Hustle and what was the draw for you? Well, I had been uh, public relations director for the Chicago Cubs for 10 years, uh, and I left the Cubs to go to the West Coast to take a job as an assistant general manager of the basketball team, uh, the old ABA. And uh, unfortunately, our, our thought was that the ABA and the NBA were going to merge, and that our team in San Diego is going to be part of the NBA. That happened not to happen, so I wound up without a job after a year, so I came back to Chicago. And I went to work for the White Sox, uh, helping with promotions in the promotions department, working for Bill Vex on Mike Vex. Uh, I've been doing that for three years. And a friend of mine, by the name of John Gary, asked me to go to lunch one day. And he said, uh, I'm going to be confronting the franchise for the new Women's Basketball League. Uh, and I'd like you to be join us as general manager. This was in 1978, 77, I think, and uh, well, my first reaction was, you're a little crazy. But then I thought about it, and it was it was kind of a, a meeting of, of, of good vibes because uh, the Blackhawks at that time were not very good, the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, they were struggling. The, the Chicago Bulls of the NBA, and you have to remember this was pre-Michael Jordan, were struggling to actually get a foothold in Chicago. So there wasn't a whole lot going on in the wintertime uh, uh, in the way of Chicago sports. And Chicago is a big sports town. So the more I thought about it, I thought, hey, this is a really good opportunity. And it should be uh, kind of fun to start at zero and put something together from the ground up. So I called John back and I said, I like the idea. Let's do it. So uh, that was the, the start. Did um, anyone in your life kind of question you uh, joining the Chicago Hustle and leaving the White Sox? Uh, basically everybody, <laughs> because it was new. I mean, nobody had heard of women's basketball on a professional level. Even uh, college, women's college basketball wasn't really big in, in the Midwest or in Chicago. So it was uh, kind of a fresh idea for everyone. But I approached it like our team, the Chicago Hustle, was another major league franchise. I tried to position it as such. Luckily, because of my years with the Cubs and, and the White Sox, I had some connections in Chicago and the media. So I was able. They, I had a little credibility, so I was able to start kind of on, with a little bit of a head start and uh, get the media involved and and uh, 
getting us getting us the, the uh, whole idea rolling with them and uh actually it was a big help and then what was the lead up to the wbl like um you joined the the franchise um but you were really starting from the ground up right uh they the league had had sort of gotten underway a little bit they had formed the league pretty much with, with the existing teams who are going to be in the first uh, WBL with their eight teams. They had held their first uh, draft already before I was on board. So uh, my approach basically was I was in charge of the marketing and business end of things. And uh, I wanted to start by establishing an image for us. Uh, we had we were just ready to start our first training camp. And uh, I, because of my contacts in the media, I guess I was able to uh, attract writers, uh, TV crews uh, from, the news, from the television stations, news crews to come out and watch practice. And I think because women's basketball, the idea of women, professional women's basketball was so new to everybody in the media in Chicago, there was a curiosity factor. Uh, and they came out and they watched our practices and they really became intrigued. Uh, there were a lot of nice columns written about us. There, were, there was some very good uh, TV coverage. And uh, we had a, a very credible coach. We had a young coach by the name of Doug Bruno, who at the time had been the women's basketball coach at uh, DePaul University, although, albeit he had only been there a couple of years, but he already had a little bit of a, a reputation. And so with him, uh, as also a drawing point, uh, we were able to start by getting coverage in the media, uh, in newspapers and on television and uh, got people at least interested in looking at it. And then what was the first home game in Chicago like? That was very exciting. Uh, to back up for a second, one of our ideas was to bring the games, uh, the, the preseason games to the public. Mm -hmm. So we arranged with high schools. Uh, I think it was, we had six pre, no, I think, Six, yeah, six preseason games uh, to get a feel for, for how the team was doing and whatnot. And I went to high schools and I said, we'd like to play the games in your high school gym. We'll split the gate with you, whatever it might be, and you can use the, your half of the gate for uh, your, your women's basketball program, your girls' basketball program at your high school, and we'll take the other half uh, for our expense, cover our expenses. So we positioned the high schools in the sub around the suburbs around the Chicago area, and we did one in the city. And with enough publicity going on and, and pregame push from the high schools itself, every high school, every game we played at a high school gym was was full. So we got a lot of coverage that way. I encouraged the media to come out and watch our preseason games with teams from uh, other teams in the league, and uh, we played good basketball. That was one thing. And Doug Bruno liked the. Uh, uh, what I call the run and gun offense. You know, a lot of running, uh, probably not a whole lot of defense, but at least it was a, a very fast paced game. And uh, the acceptance was almost immediate. So, mm -hmm. and the run up to our first game, uh, we did everything we could in terms of trying to attract crowds and uh, went to high schools. We offered ticket packages to girls basketball teams in high schools. We did everything we could think of to get people to come the first game. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, also, in the meantime, as we were getting towards the end of training camp, I went to my contacts at WGN, which was the sports station in town. Then they carried every every team. They carried the Blackhawks, the, the Bulls, the White Sox, the Cubs, the Bears, 
So they were known as the, the sports outlet. And I knew the sports producer at WGN pretty well. Uh, in fact, because I'd worked at WGN prior to the Cubs. So I went to uh, the sports producer. His name was Jack Jacobson. Sort of hat in hand. And I said, Jack, we, we don't have we, we don't have a product yet on the, on the court, but you've seen our buildup to what we're doing. Uh, I, I can't offer you a lot, uh, but I said I, I would like to challenge you to, to try an experiment and telecast a couple of our games and see what you think. So after some discussion, he said, okay, we'll do three games, three home games. Uh, they paid us a, a rights fee, but minimal, and I knew it would be minimal because we didn't have much to offer at that point. And uh, they did the first game, which was a sellout. I mean, we did everything we could to get, uh, get the crowd in. We, we played, I should back up and say, we played at the Paul University's gym in the heart of the North west side of chicago which is a, a which is a good placement for us because the gym held five thousand, so it was it was cap- it was easy to fill in the sense that we didn't we didn't have a huge stadium to fill we had a nice nice size stadium to fill and uh we had a full sellout crowd the first game wgn telecasted uh the guy who did the play-by-play in the telecast was the cubs play-by-play man uh a man by the name of vince lloyd and WGN hired uh, Johnny Kerr, who was a basketball legend in Chicago, uh, to do the color on the on the telecast. And uh, so the gym was rocking that night because it was a full crowd. We had te- television coverage. And WGN did three games in the first two months of the season, I believe. And Jack Jackson called me after the third game, and he said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? He said, you're three games uh, outdrew the Chicago Blackhawks telecast. So we want to do more games. So we reached an agreement to do six more games. So during that first season, we, were, we had six of our home games televised, which was a big boost because they reached a very wide audience. Uh, so we kind of got the ball rolling. That and the fact that the team played well. Uh, uh, and so we got, we got almost instant success, I would say, or almost instant acceptance, let's put it that way, in the first three months or so. Coming up next, we'll talk about what went on behind the scenes during the first year and beyond. BetOnline.net is the fastest and easiest way to check in on all of your betting needs. And yes, even your women's basketball betting needs. I personally am not a sports better, but I love that BetOnline offers these options for women's basketball across the board. Throughout the WNBA season and the WNBA playoffs, BetOnline made it easy to place a bet with just a couple of clicks. And now that it's time for the World Cup, you can bet on that as well. From the WNBA and women's basketball as a whole uh, to the MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL, BetOnline.net has got you covered for odds, lines, and games. Head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to learn more about the action happening today. BetOnline, where the game starts. So what do you think the long-term impact of having those games on WGN had um, for the Chicago hustle in terms of drawing crowds and then also moving into the second season, the continued success of uh, the promotion of the Chicago hustle? Well, I think first of all, it gave us instant credibility. We tried, as I said, we wanted to position ourselves as a major league team and uh, our presence on WGN sort of gave us that uh, that credibility that we were a major league team. And uh, frankly, I used my, my experience uh, 
at the foot of Bill Veck, who was uh, one of the promotion masters of all of professional baseball, and uh, tried to steal every idea uh, that I, I could from him in terms of uh, what we did in promotions. We did everything we could think of. We had a giveaway at every game. Uh, we had a promotion with a soft drink company that the team scored more than 100 points. They got free drinks. Uh, we gave away miniature basketballs. We gave away everything we could think of. So everybody walked away from a game with something in their hand as well. Uh, uh, so it was just, uh, it was more successful even than I could have hoped to begin with as far as I was concerned. And again, the team was a winning team, so that helped a lot. Uh, the players were very personable. That was a big help. Uh, we, we walked a kind of a fine line between getting, getting two fans too familiar with the players, but we wanted the players to be accessible. Uh, luckily at DePaul University, it was a private university, so there was a huge party room right off the basketball court, uh, which was called the Blue Demon Room because the Black, I mean, the Hustle was, I'm sorry, DePaul was the Blue Demons, that was their nickname. So we were able to use that room as a post-game uh, room. We had, 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 we had snacks in there and uh, a, a bar and uh, you could get soft drinks, whatever. And we asked the players, we didn't tell it was mandatory, but we asked the players to come in after they showered and changed clothes, come into the Blue Demon Room and mix with the crowd a little bit. And they did, and they were very happy to do it. And uh, uh, it, that kind of established a, 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 a real following, a base, a fan base for us that became very involved with the team. And that was that really got us rolling. And I, and I like to tell the women now that when I, when I see them and talk to them that uh, they were the uh, uh, a league of their own version, uh, a basketball version of the league of their own. They were very much pioneers. And then um, did you enjoy being a part of a new league and building everything yourself? Oh, it was a lot of fun. It really was. It was probably the most fun time of my career. I, I went on after the, the hustle. I went back to the White Sox. I was PR director for the White Sox again for 10 more years. But I think I always look back on those three years with, uh, with the hustle as being probably the most exciting time of my career. It was, it was just a lot of fun to see something, see your baby come alive and, and prosper. And truth was, we were financed well enough. We could have gone on for another five, six years. Uh, but unfortunately, other teams in the league weren't as well financed and and uh, this league started to fall apart and you can't play yourself all the time. So, you know, we couldn't keep going. And the last time we spoke, you talked a lot about the creativity you needed to use. Um, can you tell me more about how you transported the away teams? Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I don't know how it's done today, quite honestly, but back in that in those days, in the NBA and in the NHL, the visit the home team was responsible for transportation for the team, the visiting teams from the airports to the hotels, the hotels to practices, and the hotels to the arenas and whatnot. And so, uh, the WBL followed that same formula, uh, and we were. Pricing, uh, limousine, and bus services. This is preseason to get the other teams around and realize it was going to cost a heck of a lot of money. And uh, we were operating on a, on a shoestring to begin with. So, someone, and I don't remember whether it was uh, me or John Garrity or Doug Bruno, somebody came up with the idea of getting an old school bus. So, uh, John Garrity and I went out to a school bus company here in the suburbs of Chicago, and uh, they had must have had 100 used buses sitting in their lot. So we spent one afternoon driving buses around 
trying to figure out, find one that seemed to be mechanically sound. So we bought a school bus. It was a short school bus, but one that would, would seat 20 people comfortably. And I think we paid the grand sum of $2,000 for it. So now we had a vehicle. Uh, and, we, of course, we wanted to get it painted because uh, a yellow school bus wouldn't, wouldn't do. Uh, and I started pricing uh, paint jobs for the bus and was kind of, quite honestly, because I wasn't used to it, I was shocked at how much it was going to cost. Even back in the late 70s, it was like almost five or $6,000 to get the bus painted. So, again, I knew that was going to ruin our budget. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, I called a uh, junior college, a community college up in Lake County, north of Chicago, that had a auto repair program as part of their curriculum. And I talked to the man who was in charge of the curriculum. And I said, if we supply the bus and supply the paint and a sort of a design for the, the paint on the bus, would you guys be willing to paint it just for your, the experience, for your students' experience? And he said, yes, by all means. So we had a, paint, a school bus painted in our colors, white with uh, red and blue uh, uh, trimmings on it, and our, our logo on the bus. And uh, we call it the Hustle Bus. And it sort of play off on, you know, on, on uh, Sesame Street. And we used that to transport not only the visiting teams, we used it ourselves for transporting our own players around at times. And we put it in parades. We Any kind of pussy thing we could use it for, we did. And it really became well-known in Chicago. It was kind of fun. The team would drive around. They would tell me that the two cars would honk and wave and whatnot. So that was another piece of identity for us. And it turned out to be a, 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 a great vehicle for us in terms of publicity as well as having a practical purpose. Were there any other instances um, where you got creative or made do with what you had um, as part of being a, a startup? Um, a new team in a new in uh, the city. Well, I'm trying to think right now. Um, uh, hmm. Yeah, there were other things I'm sure because we did so many promotions. We we uh, we went to every advertiser we could find that we could think of uh, to get promotional materials, uh, pictures, posters, um, any kind of object we could give away at a game and. Uh, get, anything to keep people involved in it. And, and uh, uh, luckily, all those kind of things seem to work. But we also used uh, the White Sox organist at the time, a lady by the name of Nancy Faust, who was very well known in Chicago, to come out and play the organ during our games, you know, to kind of get the crowd into it. And that was a, that was a big success because she was very popular. So everybody, I think everybody got in their minds that we were a big league franchise along with the, the Cubs and the Bulls and the White Sox and so on. And how much of an advantage do you think that gave you um, in terms of draw versus other WBL teams at the time? Well, I realized because I went to a, a lot of the road games that first year too, that some of the other teams weren't doing much in the way of marketing. Uh, they weren't trying to sell the team uh, enough, I thought, I felt anyway. So I, t I talked to the commissioner of the, of the uh, and our WBL, and the name was my man by the name of Bill Byrne. And I said, I think we need to do something like we used to do in baseball and have an off-season marketing meeting uh, for other teams. And uh, he said, oh, great. Go ahead. You do it. I said, oh, okay. So that first winter after the first season, I set, I put together a two-day seminar and, and invited two people from each team to come into the Chicago and attend the seminar. And we had it at one of the hotels downtown. We had uh, 
people from advertising agencies, uh, people from the, from WGN, uh, first of all, sales and marketing. Uh, I had uh, newspaper writers come in, uh, a television reporter come in, all to address these people and explain that how, what they were interested in finding, what they were interested in looking for, <clears throat> and how they could go about utilizing these available things to promote the team. And uh, so I said, we went through two days of that, a lot of questions and answers. Uh, and uh, after that, we, the second season started and I could see uh, partway into the second season, many of the teams did not take advantage of what we were trying to, to tell them, unfortunately. And coming up next, we'll discuss some of Chuck's favorite memories from his time with the Chicago Hustle. What was your favorite part of the WBL experience? I guess uh, uh, just the, the involvement of it, uh, in it. Uh, they say the players were great. Uh, at one point, I told the players early in, in their training camp, I said, we're going to ask you to go out and make some public appearances on behalf of us. Uh, at schools, at uh, civic meetings, whatever we can do, uh, uh, interviews at, at TV stations or radio stations. <clears throat> and I said, we can't pay you much to begin with, but as if we're successful as the season goes on, I can actually get you guys stipends for doing that kind of stuff. And the players were very cooperative with it. I have to say that I had no problem with that. It's unlike baseball, where sometimes I had to twist arms and cajole players into doing things. Uh, the, the gals were very, very amenable to that kind of thing. So by the end of the first season, uh, we had gotten commercials for a couple of players. Uh, we had, uh, they were getting like $100 to go out and speak to a, a civic group or a high school group. It doesn't seem like a lot of money today, but in the 1970s uh, terms, that was a nice piece of extra change for the girls. And because they were personable, they also attracted people that way as well. Um, a funny story I can tell you, well, there's a couple of funny stories, but one I can tell you, um, we were at practice. We practiced at a gymnasium on the north side of uh, Chicago called Angel Guardian. It was at a Catholic uh, 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 or orphan's home, I guess you would call it, children's home, and it was a practice facility for the Bulls uh, or and any in, in, uh, visiting NBA teams as well as our own team. Uh, we were at practice there one day, and we're in practice was just winding up, and we were getting done, and the uh, Los Angeles Lakers came in because they were playing the Bulls the next day and they were going to practice at the same gym right after us. And so the players were curious themselves uh, and the Laker players. So they came out on the floor and they were all in uniform and they were watching us wind up our practice. And Doug Bruno, our young coach, who was very brash, walked up to Magic Johnson. He said, I got somebody who can beat you at horse. And of course, the other play, uh, you know, the, all the Laker players laughed and, and, uh, and I think Magic was a little embarrassed. He didn't want to do it. But the other, his own players, his own teammates kind of cajoled him into doing it and said, come on, you know, let's see, let's see what this girl can do. We had a forward by the name of Debbie Wadi Rossell from the University. Uh, she played at Nevada, but she was from Texas, where they play a lot of basketball. And she was an excellent shot, which was funny because your eyesight wasn't very good. She had to wear contacts. But they started playing horse. And Debbie was actually beating uh, – uh, Magic Johnson, until he got a little frustrated, and his own teammates were really giving him the business in the background. So finally, he started doing jump shot or you know uh, layups, not layups, uh, hook shots and uh, you know uh, uh, dunks and whatnot. And uh, Debbie was like 
uh, 5'11", so she couldn't do it. She couldn't do a dunk. So he, he finally beat her, but it was a struggle, and the players really gave Magic a hard time. Was it also happened? There was a TV crew there, and there were a couple of writers standing around. Uh, they had to be coming in for the uh, Lakers uh, uh, practice, not for ours necessarily. And so it became a big story in Chicago. It was kind of funny. It gave us a lot of accidental publicity, but it was it was a fun thing to watch. And then who was your favorite player in the WBL to watch? And if it's easier, you can name a player on the hustle as well as somebody else from the league. Well, in a way, they were all kind of my favorite players. They were we, Our two guards were probably our best two players on the team, uh, Rhea Easterling and uh, Janie Fincher. Uh, and also we had a, a, a one of our forwards was, was uh, Liz Galloway. Uh, uh, Janie was a, an interesting player because you could see from the beginning of practice that she was a very accomplished player. She did everything very naturally. And we found out later that she had four brothers. She was the only girl who had four brothers in her, in her family. So she played basketball against her brothers all the time. So uh, she was very used to the, to the basket, to basketball and was just a natural. So she was very good as a, as our, uh, as our shooting guard. And Rita Easterling was, uh, was a little torpedo. She was short, but she was fast and, and, uh, she was our, our uh, point guard and kind of our quarterback on the floor. And uh, she was really excellent, too. And she was she was little, but she got in and around, around the other players and had a deadly shot. And Liz Galloway was our best defensive player by far. She was a very intelligent player. And uh, uh, she really she also helped run the, run the offense. So I think uh, those are probably my favorite players. Was there anyone else uh, that you love to watch um, from a, a visiting team? Well, uh, Molly Boland from the Iowa Cornets team was a was absolutely a deadly shot. Her, her nickname was Machine Gun Molly, and uh, we've laughed ever since. Uh, in fact, uh, two years ago when we were at the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, Molly and and, and Liz were laughing at that. Liz was always uh, charged with guarding Molly, who was probably the hardest player in the NWBL to. to uh, uh, guard and Liz was always was laughing about the fact that she always fouled out when she was guarding Molly because Molly was quick and it was a good shot. So WV all over all the time. That that was a, that was a fun thing. And then looking back, what kind of legacy uh, did you hope you left um, on the WBL and women's basketball? Well, two things I think. Number one. Uh, we demonstrated the city of Chicago that basketball was a women's basketball was a very viable sport because they said people in Chicago had not had much exposure to it prior to, to the hustle. Uh, I also think we established the fact, even though we only lasted three years, that it was a possibility to establish a women's basketball league that could, could have sustainability. And thirdly, I think was the, was the, uh, the lasting history. Almost all the players went into coaching afterwards. So, that league spawned thousands and thousands of hours of, of coaching, of good coaching, uh, which I think helped propagate their, and, and carry on women's basketball at a fairly high level. And then um, did you have a favorite game uh, from the WBL? Was it the first one um, or maybe a different home game later on? Oh, I think it was our first game, mainly because it was the first – league game uh it was our first home game and we had a full house we were on wgn i said yes 
We're going to do it. It's going to happen. Because, you know, starting up, you always have a little question in the back of your mind. You you think you know what you're doing, and you think you're going to make a success out of it, but you're never quite sure that you actually see it. And there's a, a great feeling of uh, joy that you, you something your baby has, has grown up, so to speak. Uh, that's all that I had for you, Chuck. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and to all of our viewers, uh, have a great weekend. And thank you for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen. And now go make the NBA Top 50 on Locked On NBA your second listen. Which NBA player moves the betting line the most this season? Locked On and the Bet Online odds makers present the NBA Top 50 Most Valuable Players. Find it on Locked On NBA wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube.